for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Tim. And my name's Marshall. And we're back. And we are. Into the world wars. That's true. Yeah. We're actually, yeah, we're covering a, a nice little chunk of history this morning. In fact, halfway through prepping for this podcast, I was like, this could have been two or three. <laughs> <laughs> but it's sorry not. for that. It's gonna be one. It's gonna be one. Yeah, I the the thing that got me uh, is that we're getting into a point of history that people could remember. Yeah, some people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, no, there's definitely there's definitely gonna be some things that uh, are gonna become increasingly familiar to people as we as we get into these last these last episodes this year. Yeah, because yeah. we're we're closing in on the end of this thing, Tim. Right. We're we're getting there, so yeah, and I, and I feel like we're gonna upset some people today, um, mm, and, and the reason is this: it's not intentional. We're not trying to upset people. Um, I, I think we're gonna upset some people today because, for whatever reason, men love the world wars. Yeah, and they just geek out on the history I do. of the world wars. I personally do. Yeah. And we don't have time for a lot of it. No, no, we don't have a lot for that. No, this isn't a world war podcast. No, no. And inevitably, people are going to, someone is going to be jaw dropped. How could you not talk about? Oh yeah, yeah. How could you not talk about D Day? <clears throat> we're not talking about D Day. Yeah, um, we, but it, it, yeah, huge, yeah. Uh, huge part of history that people are really excited about. Mm-hmm. There are some really great podcasts out there for that. Oh yeah, yeah. Like I mean. Insofar as, excuse me. Insofar as the, the church is impacted. Like we'll 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 talk a little bit about, but this is not. Yeah, it's not a World War podcast. And yeah, you figure that out pretty soon. It's just it's just different for me to be in this time period, mm-hmm. and for that to be the backstory. Yeah, that's kind of the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. That's a good point. Yeah. So some contemporary events uh, that I will throw in here um, in nineteen twenty. There was the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote in America. Canada, we were ahead by a little bit in 1917. What do you think the first, or the first democratic country to give women the vote was, Tim? I don't know. It was New Zealand. Well, there you go. In 1893. There you go. Yeah, there had been some like some specific instances like earlier than that where like certain women were given the vote, but yeah, New Zealand. The Kiwis were the first. Uh, 1921, Wonder Bread hit the shelves. Awesome. <laughs> 1925, F. Scott Fitzgerald publishes The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought we said that last week. Did we? Maybe I, I did. I think I said that last week. Okay. 1929, the stock market crashes on October the 29th. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1933, Adolf Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany. 1936, King Edward VIII renounces the crown so that he can marry the woman he loves. And he had to do so because she had two strikes against her. She was an American, and she was a divorcee. 1939, Germany invades Poland, setting off World War II. December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, so the States gets on board. 
1945. A date which will live in infamy. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, there was a movie. There was a movie, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's the famous speech given by okay. the president. Okay. Today, December the 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Infamy. The United States was brutally and deliberately attacked by the Empire of Japan. That's the opening of the speech. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, Just winging that off the top of my head like a good American. (coughs) That's fantastic. Um, 1945, the microwave oven is invented. That's incredible. Yeah. And in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered. And that's what I got for today. Nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. So. Where to begin? Yeah. So I, I've got a bit of a quote here <clears throat> that kind of is like the backstory behind the backstory behind the backstory. Okay. So a famous historian by the name of Arnold Toynbee, he said that Christianity in the 20th century was displaced or going to be displaced by three rising ideologies. Now that proved to be partially true, we could say. But the three ideologies are nationalism, communism, and individualism. Mm. And I think, I think throughout the 20th century, and particularly, you know, even during the wars in between them, these ideologies as worldviews, whether again nationalism, communism, or individualism, <clears throat> um, begin to supplant, or at the very least, heavily influence um, the church. So and in the the Christian worldview as the dominant view in Western society. Yeah, I I think I think the role of society. I can mute you. I think the role of society is an important thing. Uh, in in this particular episode, we talked about it some in the past. Uh, so, for instance, when we were talking about the early church fathers, we said. We're going to extend some grace mm-hmm. in these circumstances right. because we have spent 2,000 years learning from them, seeing the consequences of those ideas played out, mm-hmm. uh, having other people enter the conversation. Mm-hmm. All of that is growth. Right. This notion that Jesus left the early church with perfect theology mm-hmm. and everything sort of worked out. Mm. is not the case. Right, of course. Right? We grow and there's enlightenment and we use our reason, we watch things, we try ideas, those kinds of things. Always sticking with Scripture. Sure. Right? This isn't sort of like the Catholic, the teachings of the Church grow to supersede Scripture kind right, of thing. Right, right. We talked about throughout parts of the Reformation, you got to give some of these guys some grace because everything around them is heresy, mm-hmm. and they get a hold of a Bible, and they're working these things up, and what are they coming to, right? Mm-hmm. This is such a tumultuous time. It is, yeah. With two world wars and the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, they've there's a lot of historical theology. Mm-hmm. To build on, to act as an anchor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe it's not the same kind of a leash. We are all products of our culture. Mm-hmm. We were talking about it yesterday. Churches in our exact time and place that are making decisions that I don't know that they would make 
in another time and place. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's shaping their character. Now, yeah, this is where we're going to get into the point where we're like, I'm going to talk about that as if I'm an outside observer who's not in that. <laughs> not in it, yeah, I know. Uh, but we we all do um, succumb in, in ways oh, yeah. to time and place. Oh, yeah. And the time and the place, as you said, were particularly troubling. I mean, the First World War was really unlike anything that preceded it in regards mm-hmm. to the scope of operations, the number of countries involved, and right. just the death toll. I mean, what you had, again, we're not going to get in deep to this, but you had new technologies, relatively new technologies, mm-hmm. poison gas, machine guns, aircraft, tanks by the end of it, right? Um, and people not knowing how to use them yet. Well, in, in some outdated ways. strategies, right? right. Like, we're going we're gonna to charge that German machine gun position on the backs of horses like right no you don't do that but they they had to like get mowed down several times before they stopped trying it right right or the tank is just another part of like you just use it like cavalry and then also you're like well that's, we're not going to defend it like cavalry anymore right? right that didn't work right yeah and i mean just horrible conditions especially especially like as the battle line set it in set in and you had kind of those that trench warfare i mean mm-hmm. just horrible horrible conditions um 10 million dead combatant combatants and estimates that there may have been as many as you know seven or eight million civilians dead primarily from hunger and disease mm-hmm. as a secondary result of uh of world war one and so this impacts church history in a couple of ways you you get kind of some outspoken opposition amongst certain like Anabaptist groups and the Quakers, right, who are pacifists. Um, but by and large, most churches in the First World War were supportive of the war effort. Um, in some cases, pulpits were used to encourage young men to enlist, to defend their country or the mother country. Um, mm-hmm. Churches became centers for various activities, for the war effort, right? Pulling together. The church was the center of the community, gathering supplies, prayer meetings, up, updating people on news from the front. So the churches were, were involved in the, the majority of churches were involved in the war right. effort, whether you're in Britain in Canada and the U S um, it, it provided opportunities for there to be unity amongst soldiers of differing de- denominations, right? You had huge numbers of soldiers, right? often from different, you know, not just different ethnic backgrounds, potentially, but also different denominational backgrounds, um, who had to kind of fight alongside one another. And the role of the, the role of chaplains, I guess chaplaincy was super important in World War One. Um, but they, I mean the governments essentially used them as morale boosters. That was their right. That's like just keep the guys fighting was their was their real job. It wasn't like, you know, shepherd them in the sure. truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was like just keep them going. And, and you know what I would say it's more that now than ever. Sure, yeah, yeah. Because because now there's not even you're not even allowed in a lot of these cases to have a particular conviction that you're putting forth. Right. Right? A lot of military chaplains today mm. are required to approach it as universalists, right? Right, right, yeah. Yeah. Whatever whatever keeps you happy, do that. Right. And go fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Pope, for his credit, he referred to World War I as the bane of God's wrath. Mm. Um, they remained neutral 
uh, the Catholic Church didn't get kind of didn't pick a side uh, because there were Catholics and Protestants on both sides of World War One because it wasn't a religious conflict. It was an ideological one. Um, I think for me, and you can maybe add add to this if you want, the biggest impact it had on the Protestant Church, I think, World War One, was um, prompted a shift in eschatology, end time theology, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, if you are an you know an onlooker or a participant, even in World War One, I, I mean, the four horsemen are here, right? Yeah, like that's right. Like that is that is the the sense you're gonna get, right? If you're looking out at, at the fields, you know, in Flanders or in in you know Eastern France, like it it looks like hell. Yeah, and and the way so we talked a few episodes back about dispensationalism, mm-hmm. the rise of dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the way the dispensationalism characterizes the end of times in in an apocalyptic battle kind of a way, mm-hmm. uh, if, if this feels like that, yeah, and and it would, you know what? There's a part, there's a part of me that sees it not as that because of the distance I have from it, right, right, right in it. I might have been there too. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, um, but yeah, this is this is where so dispensationalism has had its birth. Mm. It's made its rise. Mm-hmm. This is where it becomes cemented. Yeah, right. So yeah. so when we when we talk, especially in in Baptist Pentecostal circles, about how many people believe dispensationalism is the only eschatology mm-hmm. and you and I both began that way mm-hmm. right the only reading of the end of times uh through revelation this is how modern that is yeah, yeah. right that this is where it becomes the most common yeah and cuz people were rocked right because like for for most people in western christianity they the expectation was that, you know, in fits and spurts, that things were going to continually get better. And mm-hmm. then suddenly you're faced with this conflict, this massive conflict. And so what you have is just, you know, that increasing pessimism in the Christian worldview. Where, where you know, when, when, it's the, when it's so common for people to hear like, oh, things are just going to get worse, worse and worse before Jesus comes back. Like, that's a common view today for people to just talk that way. Um Prior to World War One, it wasn't. That was not what people's expectation generally was. Mm-hmm. That was not part of the the general conscience or consciousness of of Protestant Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's a hundred years old. And and again, World War One, the Depression, World War Two are going to cement that perspective. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean, you have one thing we should mention though, and I think we're going to talk about more next week. Um, but towards the end of World War One, there was the communist um, revolution in Russia in 1917. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so Lenin, you know, influenced by the writings of Marx and others, leads a rebellion against the Tsar, slaughters the royal family, becomes dictator, you know, takes hold of the means of production, dismantles institutions, namely the church. Um, yeah. 
uh, we'll talk about Cold War Christianity next week, but um, it, it, things were bad um, in, in Russia for the Christian church, and we're not going to talk too much about their experience today, because I think it maybe lends itself better to next week's discussion, yeah, but, but it's agree. bad. Like, Lenin's successor, Stalin, um, was particularly brutal. Uh, some would argue more so than Hitler. He, he stacked more bodies than Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, in any case, um, we'll talk about that, but it's something to, to know is going on also in the, in the mix. Um, in the West, after the war, the church continues getting involved in social issues. The most notable ones, probably prohibition, uh, which in the United States began in 1920 and ended in 1933. Uh, we talked about the temperance movement. It's not new, but it never been like endorsed like this wholesale by the federal government, right? Right, right. Um, so but what, what ends up happening, what happens to happen when you have prohibition, folks, is that just the production, distribution, sale of alcohol is just taken up by organized crime. Sure. And so what you have is alcohol consumption dropping initially, but as the years go on, it gets back to pre-prohibition levels. It, it didn't, didn't work, unfortunately. But interestingly enough, I, I, you might know this. I wasn't aware of this. But certain states kept prohibition laws longer. Uh, Kansas till 1948, Oklahoma till 1959, and Mississippi till 1966. Hmm. We're dry states. Yeah. Not just dry county. I know there's dry counties that still kick around. but it, It's been a long time. Uh, but my understanding is that in Oklahoma, at least years back, it's still a point where the percentage of alcohol in drinks sold there has to be less. Oh, so you can get like beer but not liquor kind of thing. Is that the idea? I, I don't know how it works. Okay, the, let me tell you exactly what I'm basing this on. Okay. I was, th- this is not being facetious. I was always the good Christian kid who was always invited to the party and then everyone would laugh like as if he would actually show up. Kind of a oh, thing. Okay, that's it's just true. I was a keener for Jesus from the beginning. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but but hearing other teenagers talk about crossing the border into Oklahoma mm-hmm. to buy alcohol because our section of Arkansas was still um, there was still it was still dry. Okay, uh, but that what you bought over there was weaker than anything you could buy. And oh, interesting. Parts of Arkansas that weren't dry. Um, but all of that is secondhand teenager. And it's been a long time since I've been a teenager. <laughs> There's a lot of fog between here. I should have just left that quiet. But anyway. That's funny. We, we, we move on. We move on. We move on to the Depression. Um, so as you mentioned, 1929, stock market collapse. And then that just kind of ripples across the mm-hmm. world, really. Um, and how this affected churches, I mean, church budgets shrank, right? Clergy, right? Pastors or priests or whatever laid off, lose their positions. Missions work, whether local or foreign slows down. Sometimes it stops like the money, the money just runs out, Mm -hmm. um, at least for a while. And what ends up happening in the 1930s is that governments step in to take on a lot of the work that was previously done by churches, right? Like historically, like who fed the poor in the community? The, the churches did, 
Like right. that was what they did, right? But what happened is because those churches are kept afloat financially through the givings of individuals, and so many of those individuals have lost their jobs or lost their life savings or lost their homes, they have no money, but the government can just print it off ad nauseum as they are won't want to do. Um, and so essentially the, the care of the, the vulnerable in the community was handed over to the government by the churches um, throughout the 1930s. Yeah, I, I'm going to differ with you a little bit on that. Okay. I don't know. I don't know that the church just gave it away. Well, I don't think they wanted to. I think they had to. But I, I, don't, even, I don't even know that there was a transaction, because I'm just going to see it differently, mm-hmm. right? Um, as giving decreased... Mm-hmm. The capacity decreases, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they still were, right? But in a percentage that was ineffectual, right? Right. Um, but Mr. Roosevelt mm-hmm. is able to form all of these government organizations: Tennessee Valley mm-hmm. Authority, um, the CCC. Mm-hmm in which he's able to employ these people to do these kinds of work, to give money to people. Right. That's just not a resource that the church had available to them. Right. And so, so it seems like in this period, money stops moving. Mm -hmm. And so money's, when money's not moving, it has to be generated. Right. And, and so that's what Roosevelt does. Mm -hmm. Um, and and still today, like when I take my kids to uh, to the south and we do things right, like we go to the state parks. Right. State parks are in in a lot of ways just sort of invented in this time. Mm. Right. So Roosevelt comes in and he's like, "What we need to do is not just give away money. He's not just printing money. Mm-hmm. He's saying we need we need to invent reasons to give people money." Okay. So he's like, all right, we're going to invent a group called the CCC, and they're going to be government employees, and they're going to build, I don't know, state parks. Hmm. And so everywhere you go in Arkansas in a state park, there's a stone, like, fence, like a guardrail Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in front of a beautiful lookout point with a little statue or a little thing on the side that says CCC Mm -hmm. 1940. Okay. Right? Or just a stone cabin or pavilion randomly placed in the forest (laughs) with a trail that goes to it. Right. And a little plaque somewhere that says Tennessee Valley Authority. Right. 1942. Right? Hmm. Um, So so I I see it a, a little bit differently in that there is an overtaking or a transition hmm. where we get into a place of government provision Mm -hmm. i don't know what the canadian experience is i'm ignorant to the history of that Mm -hmm. um i know that the canadian government is now more heavily involved in the just distribution of funds than than i would think that the american government is Mm -hmm. um but but how it happens in this time period i think is more about inventing ways Inventing reasons to give people money yeah. 
at, for for their labors. Right, right. No, I just know that like there were church leaders who were gathering at this time to call on the government to take on these responsibilities because they said we can't do it anymore. Right. The government yeah. has the capacity yeah. to do it in a way yeah. that the church can't just say, yeah. all right, build us build us a, an extension onto the building yeah. so that we can pay you. Yeah. Right? Because they don't have the money either. Mm-hmm. But the government can say, okay, build an extension onto the courthouse and we'll pay you. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, a lot of these programs, like the New, the new Deal, as it was, right. um, you know, not everyone was on board. People were divided on it, as they always are. It's always, I find it, every time, because there was just an election south of the border recently, every time, just the narrowness of every election just boggles my mind. Like the 50-50 split that exists, it's all, like, I don't know if it's the perfect system or it's if it's either the best <laughs> possible situation or the worst, I don't know. But it, anyways, that's neither here nor there. But what ended up happening is you have kind of these increasing rifts within certain Protestant denominations as, you know, it was kind of liberal and conservative theology. Now liberal and conservative politics are mm-hmm. becoming more and more important because um, the stakes are higher, I guess, you know, in, in the, in the 1930s. Um, so you have these kind of deepened divides between different Christian groups. Right. And, and right. so you have kind of the social gospel advocates calling for more government support and, and, you know, spending and whatnot and kind of your more classically conservative people kind of calling out the the issues with that or railing against it or whatever. So that's a thing going on. Right. It's and, a thing that continues to, to this day, I would say. And and the, the interesting thing about the way that it happened then versus the way that it happens now, um, I, I think it, it would be interesting for people to go back and look at who are the governmental figures in the various regions mm-hmm. during this time period. Uh, because what we're going to see more than once— Mm. We've already formed the two-party system, the Democrats and the Republicans. Mm-hmm. But which party is liberal and which party is conservative and what that means right. is going to flip. Yeah. So there's going to be a chance that people are going to look and they're going to be like, wow, the Democrats ruled the South. And I would have thought the South would have been more conservative. Right. Well, <laughs> that's because what is conservative and liberal flips right. later on. Yep. Not exactly at this point. Yeah. Although there is some of that starting to take place at this point, mm-hmm. um, one one of the well, Roosevelt was a Democrat, right? So he was, yeah. But anyways, yeah. You know, I know what you mean, though. One of the best ways to to really take a glimpse into what life was like in this time period, mm. um, there there are some great histories on that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I I would recommend this. I would recommend that you go to your local library. And you just go to John Steinbeck section mm. and just read it all. John Steinbeck wrote fiction in his era. Okay. That was was just a snapshot of everyday life around him mm-hmm. and the struggles that were going on. Um, but one of the most eloquent sculptors of story that U.S. American literature has ever known. Right. Uh, things that people would know are things like Of Mice and Men, 
Okay, yeah. Grapes of Wrath. Okay. Other things to know, like the Red Pony, okay. is just incredible. The Forgotten Village. Mm. Uh, these, man, these are just beautiful snapshots that show that people are still living in this time. Mm-hmm. There, it's not only struggle. Right. There's joys and struggles, and he just does such a great job of pulling all of that together and and. It's not really making a big statement for or against, just saying this is life. Right. This is what it looks like. That that era. And he's incredible. Cool. John Steinbeck. John Steinbeck. Okay. Cool. No, that's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, there's a lot going on throughout those years. Um, I think, though, when it comes to the church and the, the decisions that church has had to make, I think the highest stakes and maybe the most interesting arena... Um, through the 1930s was what the church was going through in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, because of what Germany's going through. Be, yeah, well, yeah, right? So after World War I uh, was concluded, there was the Treaty of Versailles, right? Which wasn't really a treaty because it was essentially... The, the French and the British are like, this is what you're going to agree to or we're going right. to invade, right? So a treaty, most generally, is terms of peace. Right. This is... Not terms of peace. It's not terms of surrender. It's terms of defeat. Right. Yes. Yeah. You've lost, and this is what you've lost. Right. So Germany has to pay reparations to cover the massive bills that mm-hmm. the Allies had accrued, that everyone had accrued fighting this long war. Um, and, you know, there's periods of like unbelievable levels of hyperinflation going on in Germany. Right. Like it happens in pockets all over the place, but like we're talking about like, you know, a loaf of bread going from, from like a hundred marks to like two hundred million in the space of like months. Mm-hmm. Like it's just unbelievable, right? Um Germany became after World War One became heavily dependent on foreign investment from America in particular to kind of get their economy up and running. So when things crashed in the US, they actually crashed even harder in Germany. Mm-hmm. So Unemployment, social issues, etc., and people began blaming others for the issues that they were going through. Sure, blamed the European powers, blamed the Jewish community because they tended to withstand economic hardship better. Uh, there are reasons for that. Uh, Jews don't charge each other interest, so if you're <laughs> trying to establish your family or business or that sort of thing, anyways, or they don't charge one another interest, anyways. There's, they had a lot of involvement in the banking system, in the banking system, so they become sort of the face of the financial situation. Exactly. So when finances are not good, then they're public image. So, so out of this, you know, people are getting concerned. They're freaked out. They're hungry. They're broke. So the central kind of moderate parties that had really held control in Germany for some time, uh, they begin to lose support and people kind of just gravitate towards extreme left, extreme yep. right. Right. Uh, and, and and it's important, to, it's important to lay the foundation. This, this is where people are going to hear even a little bit of that and they're going to go, this is dicey. Like, are you setting up, are you setting up a scenario where you can say, you see why Hitler did what he did? And the answer, the answer is a hard no, right? I'm not even willing to say you can see why the German people followed, but I'm saying you can see where 
the foothold comes in. Oh, yeah, for sure. Right? That's not to say that it's right or justifiable or I would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's just to say you can see how it got there. Oh, yeah. It's not like everything was roses Mm -hmm. and everyone's just going about their day uh, and all of a sudden someone walks in and goes, hey, you know what? What about genocide? Right. And an entire nation goes, I mean, I'm not doing anything. Let's do it. Let's go for it. Right. That's not the situation at all. The situation is their country has been decimated by a war. Mm -hmm. And when everyone else is rebuilding, they continue to be decimated. Right. That doesn't mean it's someone else's fault. No. I, I would, there are those who would blame all of the situation on the Treaty of Versailles and the terms that come out of it. No. I don't think it's unfair. Yeah. It's definitely, right? a, it's definitely a, a significant factor. It, it's a factor to where they are, why they are where they are. Right. It's not a factor in how they choose to respond. No. As a society. Right. Right. I personally know people that I pastored in Toronto Mm-hmm. who were a part of the Hitler Youth Movement. Wow. Ashamedly so. Mm-hmm. But being young at this time, being put under the propaganda of the time, mm-hmm. and being shown, you see how wealthy these people are mm-hmm. and how much you're struggling. And do you see, did you know that the reason we're struggling is because we're paying them to be wealthy? mm is this how you want to live? Is this the future you want? Yeah. Um, and and some of them coerced in that way. Some of them forced into it. Right. Right. Sure. Uh, but I I've heard them talk about hmm. rebelling against their parents, inner familial feuds of whether or not this was going to be a thing, um, right. and them not realizing until mid-war how big of a deal this is. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but. Is it, is it, is, does it justify the explosion? No. Mm-hmm. But you want to dump gunpowder on the ground yeah. and put a box of matches beside it? Yeah. 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 That's, that's a good, that's a good point to make. Yeah. Cause it, as I mentioned before, 1933, Hitler's elected chancellor of Germany. At that point, chancellor and president are two different offices. Right. But then when, uh, but not long after that, he combines the offices and he becomes the supreme ruler, the Fuhrer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this sparked kind of an extended period of crisis for churches in Germany. It's actually known to history as the Kirchenkampf, so the church struggle. And it refers in part to the struggles between the Nazi party and the church, but also struggles between churches mm-hmm. in light of the Nazi regime. Right. So the thing to remember at the time of Hitler's election, right? Germany is a Christian nation on paper, right? There is a sizable amount of Catholics, like 30% of Germans are Catholic. The overwhelming majority of Germans are part of this kind of unified Lutheran reformed church. Right. To be Lutheran is to be German and to be German is to be Lutheran. Yeah, essentially. Right. Um, Unlike the communists in Russia, the Nazis just didn't immediately go about destroying the church. No. But that doesn't mean they liked Christianity and didn't mean they were going to leave it alone. Um, They liked the nationalistic side of Lutheranism. Yeah, but they were selective. Right. So 
in I, I read a quote by uh, hist- historian Alan Bullock, and he kind of summarized Hitler's views of Christianity this way. He said, in Hitler's eyes, Christianity was a religion fit only for slaves. He detested its ethics in particular. Its teaching, he declared, was a rebellion against the natural law of selection by struggle and the survival of the fittest. So the idea of serving, the idea of humility, right, of mercy, mm-hmm. forgiveness, sin, guilt, all these things, it, in his eyes, it kept the German people down. And so he saw it as, you know, it was it was weakening the his people. So he, right. he hated it. So this is this is the topic of my junior thesis. Okay. And my undergraduate. Okay, I didn't know that. When I was, uh, because my my undergraduate degree is history, and so I have a junior thesis, and and then I had a senior thesis. My junior thesis was this: uh, social Darwinism within Hitler's Nazism. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and at the time I was a youth pastor, and I was working on the paper from my office, and my pastor, the boss walked in and asked me to not do that because strewn across my desk, I have Darwin, <laughs> the origin of the species and Mein Kampf. Oh my and so, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. So, so taking Darwin's theory of evolution, which has become the this groundswell mm-hmm. of science mm-hmm. and reason and adding a social aspect to that, mm-hmm. Hitler begins this notion of Arianism, right? Right To say, listen, we deserve, look at us, look at how superior we are physically. Mm-hmm. It's only evolutionary process for us to dominate. Right. Yeah, that was his. Yeah, and so that's kind of his idea. So, And, and it's something that's really at the core of the Nazi mentality. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> when, you know, the one thing... One thing to understand is that a lot of Germans didn't know about the the degree of brutality that was going on in the concentration camps, mm-hmm. but they knew this. This was this was bread and butter. Right. This was the bread and butter that got Hitler elected. Like this was this was the common mindset that they were they were the dominant race, mm-hmm. um, and not just specifically whites over everyone else, but Germans over everyone else. Um, a lot of people in the Nazi regime, though, openly hated Christianity and were in favor of this. There's this weird kind of nationalistic pagan thing that kind of shows it rears its ugly head behind the scenes. But for political reasons, um, the Nazis retained a measure of tolerance for Christianity, at least for favorable forms of Christianity for them. Right, and we talked about this months ago, right? Mm-hmm. Because this nationalistic idea, which they're trying to push, mm-hmm. right? If if we can push, if we can push the German agenda, then the human agenda becomes secondary behind the German agenda, right? Right, right, and the Christian agenda becomes behind right. the German agenda, yeah. And so the way that they the way that they use Christianity is they take the darkest side of Martin Luther. Yeah. Martin Luther's greatest error was his anti-Semitic mm-hmm. uh, leanings and and expressions. Sure. I 
I have a want to be gracious, but there's not a lot of grace to give yeah. in this arena. Yeah. Uh, and, and so Hitler's going to denounce Christianity, mm. but out of the same lips, he's also <laughs> going to say, and my goodness, aren't we Lutheran? <laughs> and doesn't even Luther himself feel this way? Right, right. Right? So he's like, Christianity is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Lutheranism is ridiculous, except for this one part that I can make use of. Mm-hmm. And and then, boy, that's a thing we can all get behind, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, so they, what, the Nazis saw the church as a potential, uh, they, they saw all institutions as potential vehicles for ad- advancing the nationalist mm-hmm. agenda. So you just have to reorient, you know, the elementary schools to the universities, to the churches, to every kind of institution. You have to reorient it so that it ends up just kind of serving the same identical function so that everybody's on the same page, right? Um, Far right or far left, it's all essentially the same. Anyways, um, some of the things that the the Nazis start imposing as far as religious policy goes— Throughout the the kind of mid nineteen thirties, uh, kind of a pretty open opposition towards Catholicism. Um, it's not good to be Catholic. It's not as bad as it is to be Jewish, but it's not good to be Catholic in Hitler's right. Germany. Uh, you aren't getting you aren't getting any important positions in society. Well, the, and and the reason is that German agenda. Right. Right. Like if you're Lutheran, because the Pope's not German. <laughs> if you're Lutheran, at least you're German. Right. Right. But if you're Catholic. Yeah. You're acknowledging something beyond the borders of Germany right. as an authority. Yeah. And we're not a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. There there is no globalization, no space for any level of globalization. Yeah. Oh, for sure. In this dogma. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean they're you know, they're taking over the finances and governances of of church organizations. They start passing sterilization laws. So essentially, like, if you aren't deemed to be, um, you know, an ideal person to pass down your DNA, they're going to sterilize you, right? And obviously, like, the Catholic Church and many in the Protestant Church are not down with that, mm-hmm. right? So that causes issues. Attacks against Jewish communities, the anti-Semitism laws, kind of enforcing um, certain vows of loyalty to Hitler. And so... By the mid-1930s, all of these things lead to a major schism in the German church. So you have, you have two factions. You have the Deutsch Christen, which are just German Christians, and the Bekenende Kirche. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say with confidence there. The confessing church. Mm-hmm. So the Deutsch Christen, or the German Christians, those were those who were allied to the Nazi party. They were a faction within the larger denominations, um, but ultimately they take over. They kind of become the approved church in the Nazi regime. And you'll see this in places like um, in China, for example, today. There is what's called the Threefold Unity Church or something. Yeah. Yeah, so that is the approved church that, you know, where, again— where the where the secular atheistic government uh-huh. says here's your sermon for Sunday, right? And so they're yeah. using the institution of the church primarily as a vehicle to advance their own political agendas, right? Right. So that's happening in Nazi Germany, just as it happens in China today. Um, they move to do what they call de-Judaizing the Bible. Uh, so 
you know, considering just like cutting out the Old Testament entirely. Uh, even one guy went so far as to write a fifth gospel, the Arian gospel, which is just this heavily redacted and restructured view of Jesus, not as the savior, not as our sacrifice, but as the conquering king over the Jews. Um, so just blatant, like just blatant right. ridiculousness. Um, the Deutsche Christen, they you know supported anti-Semitism wholesale. Um, they often eliminated conversations of sin. Now, why would they do that? Well, because sin and guilt are going to keep the German people down. Mm-hmm. And they need to be elevated. They need to be brought out from the depths. So you don't you don't tell them you don't tell them that they've got problems. You don't tell them they're they've got issues. Right. That, if even temporarily, mm. right? Like if if even we we just we're going to do some things and for a moment, yeah, that are going to seem heinous. Mm-hmm. But in the end, you'll understand the payout. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So they've they've got to sort of like numb the conscience. Right. In the moment. Right. So that we can get to the other yeah, side. Because the real goal. The glorious other side. Yeah, yeah. And obviously they advocated for the supreme rule of earthly rulers. Romans 13 was their favorite passage, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's what the Fuhrer wanted. I'm sure I'm sure he was very happy. I'm sure that was his favorite Bible passage too. Um, their symbol, I mean, their symbol is just so blatant. It's literally a cross with the swastika. Mm-hmm. And the letters D and C for Deutsch Christian. Now, in response to this, there was a number of pastors who broke off and formed what came to be known as the Confessing Church. Mm-hmm. Um, they were founded by a guy named Martin Niemöller. Martin Niemöller, you may have never heard his name before, but he's famous for this very short poem. I'll read it, and you'll recognize it. First, they came for the communists, and I did not speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Hmm. Uh, He wrote that shortly after the war. Uh, But Martin Niemöller was the founder of this confessing church that that got its name essentially based on its desire to hold their own confession of faith. Mm -hmm. He said, we want to be able to determine what it is that we believe without the Nazis telling us yeah, man that quote cuts oh yeah oh yeah i know and that was real that was his that was his that was his experience mm-hmm. they did come for him after they came from those groups right like and that was that was real right and he's one of these guys he's he spent uh seven years in various uh concentration camps mm-hmm. um yeah the, martin niemuller had a rough go he survived um but it was it was not easy yeah and so so they have this confessing church that's trying to stand up, right, and kind of handle this this situation, this kind of unprecedented situation, right, that a secular government is going to be, like, imposing doctrine on, right, on the church saying, like, you need to include this extra paragraph about whatever. But how Henry the fewer... I mean, I guess, I guess, but not to the same... Not it, to the same Henry VIII degree. was self-serving, right? But he wasn't trying to destroy people the way Hitler is. No. So, so I guess what I'm yeah. trying to separate is the difference between a secular government trying to rule the teachings of the church, right, versus what that outcome is desired to be. Right. Okay. I see. Yeah. 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 I mean, 
the ultimate goal for the Nazis was to eradicate the church eventually, but they were going to, in the meantime, they were going to use it for what they could, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the more outspoken members of this group, including Niemöller and others, would eventually be arrested, church funds confiscated. In fact, the government, the, the Nazi government, actually built dedicated barracks for imprisoned clergymen at the Dachau concentration camp. So they had a, they had a, a, a block of that prison camp that was dedicated yeah. specifically for pastors and a lot of Catholic priests. In fact, I think the majority were Catholic priests, but any outspoken Protestants, they, they went there too. Um, but let's talk about the most famous resisting pastor in Germany. Yep. Because time is getting on. Karl Barth's just going to have to be Cold War. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah we'll just we'll just save Karl okay. Barth for next week. So we're, let's talk about let's talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah. Uh, Bonhoeffer was born in 1909. Um, he he got his master's and then his doctorate in theology very young. Mm-hmm. At the age of 24, he has his PhD. In fact, he was so young that he couldn't be ordained in the German church yet. So, so instead he goes for a little trip to the States for a while to do some postgraduate studies. He's heavily influenced by some of the, the professors there. Um, he teaches at Union Theological Seminary in New York for a bit. And then he goes back to Germany in 1931 uh, to continue teaching at the University of Berlin, takes up a pastorate. He'd been a guy... So he... When Hitler came to power, he was outspoken against Hitler from essentially day one. So, or let's call it day three, because two days after Hitler Hitler's election, he openly criticizes Hitler, the Nazi regime, where things are going, warns the people of the danger on live radio. Yeah. Two days after. So, like, this dude's opinions were, were pretty well known. And, and, and here's the thing, right? The, he's... Not all of his work is responsive, right? He's not right. always responding to the Nazi party. Right, right. The cost of discipleship is by far and away his most known work. Um, I know I've already got you as a signed reading looking into John Steinbeck. Um, you need to do that. You also need to read The Cost of Discipleship. Okay. This is just going to be the episode where I assign you more reading than you can do. Um, <laughs> welcome to my world. <laughs> and my world. And I just want you to commiserate. Um, so that was published in 1937. Yep. His legacy, as we're going to talk about in these next few minutes, mm-hmm. is him living his own sermon. Oh, yeah. Because the cost of discipleship is an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount mm-hmm. saying your faith is going to cost you something. Yeah. Right? And he steps into this. Mm-hmm. I, I would say next in line for must-reads from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, mm-hmm. Life Together. Okay. Especially if you're a part of our local church and you've been really encouraged by the the most recent sermon series on what it means for us to do the one another passages. Yeah. Life together is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's teaching mm-hmm. on what it means for the church to be that corporate body mm-hmm. living together and loving each other well. And so these mentalities are his are what he's laid out. He stands up and says this isn't right. Mm-hmm. Yet it continues to rise and the beauty of Bonhoeffer is that he just doesn't back down. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't back away from what he believes to be true. Yeah, so he he teaches, uh, he ends up teaching at this underground seminary 
that they they create to train up pastors for the confessing church. And, you know, his teaching position at the official university was revoked. It was revoked and he was denounced as a pacifist and enemy of the state, which is true at the time, mm-hmm. but will end up being a little bit ironic in, in, in a sense. Um, that underground seminary was forcibly closed by the Gestapo in 1937. Pastors, students arrested. It's during this time that he publishes the cost of discipleship. So he's already starting to live it, but it's going to, it's going to continue. Um, he spent a couple years traveling from town to town doing what was referred to by one of his biographers as seminary on the run. So he would just stop in and visit these, you know, students who were illegally serving as pastors in these Mm -hmm. small country churches Right. And just like going through stuff with them and teaching them and guiding them kind of under the cover of darkness and just kind of secretly, you know, running this network of uh, of churches that were not loyal to the Nazi party. Um, just before war breaks out, he briefly returns to the States. Partly he, he realizes, OK, I'm either going to get conscripted in the army or I'm going to have to fight this thing from the inside. Mm-hmm. And he's he up to this point has been a committed pacifist, so he doesn't know what to do but that. Right. Right? But he's only in the States for a couple weeks, and he's regretting that decision. And he writes a letter. Um, in it, He just says, you know, Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their own nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. And I know which one of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. And so there's a shift in Bonhoeffer's understanding here. Yeah, this is, this is a hard thing that I pray to God we never have to deal with. Yeah. But we have brothers and sisters making this decision right now in Afghanistan. Yep. Uh, in Iran, uh-huh. um, in I, I, the Bible does give space to flee mm-hmm. under persecution. Right. Do you are you better served as a pastor to flee and continue your opportunity to mm-hmm. teach and to preach and to disciple? Or do you stay mm-hmm. and possibly die mm-hmm. in the wrath of what's going on? Yeah. There is no singular biblical answer. Mm-hmm. It is up to the conscience of each person in this. That Bonhoeffer was in a place of freedom. Mm-hmm. And chooses to go back, yeah, is next level incredible. It is it is unspeakably incredible for those who would stay in persecution to lead the church, mm-hmm. to taste freedom, mm. and to go back. Yeah, yeah, no, it's huge. And I mean, he's in he's in a difficult spot because you know, it, just like that quote, he's like, okay, so either. Either, you know, our our nation falls mm-hmm. and truth and freedom persist, or our nation wins and those things are destroyed, right? And so 
he's like, what? I got to pick a side in this. I can't just be a bystander in this anymore. And that, yeah. that's for him. Anyways, that's the, that's the conclusion he comes to. And so he goes back to Germany. He's harassed by German authorities. Ultimately though, he, this is, this is the most interesting part of his story. Well, is one of the most interesting parts. He ends up joining up with something called the Abwehr, which is a German spy network that works for the army. Okay. However, Bonhoeffer essentially becomes a bit of a double agent, kind of, because the Abwehr, even though it's a German spy agency that works for the German military, they are opposed or at least some of the high-ranking officials are opposed to the Nazi regime mm-hmm. and are at odds with the SAS, or the SS, rather, sorry. Um, <clears throat> and so Bonhoeffer is used to feed intelligence to the German resistance and Western allies and to help shape plots against the Nazi regime. Um, so it's this really weird thing that in the midst of World War II, there are feuding German spy agencies from within. It's it's all very interesting. Very Bonhoeffer. It's crying. It's crying for exactly right. <laughs> but it's it's just it's just asking for some historical fiction to be written about that because I, I find that fascinating. And yeah, that, it, it, it was not something I was aware of. It's not only it's not only just like interesting, right? It, it creates this whole level of issue. Well, yeah. Like ethical, Christian, <laughs> the whole discussion of Christian ethics. Yeah. So we got lying. <laughs> right. We got stealing. We've got lies, deception, murder, murder plots. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are we supposed to pray for our leaders or yeah. participate in, in a coup and assassinations? Right. Um, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I, I, I understand I could be completely thrown under the bus right. and people being like, Tim, you're just waffling and not making a statement. I'm going to waffle and not make a statement Okay. about whether or not I think this participation was right. Yeah. I th- not because I don't necessarily have an opinion. I might mm-hmm. if, I, if I gave it just a second. Mm-hmm. I just feel like we as a society have become too comfortable Sitting back, sipping our coffee mm-hmm. in a nice, warm studio. Right. Determining whether or not that person made the right decision right. in the heat of their moment. Right. I, I think we're just too good at that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, sure. so I'm just going to say the world doesn't need my opinion. Mm. But man, what a, what a place he's in. Well, yeah, because he goes from becoming, being a, a committed pacifist to plotting murder attempts of Hitler, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a tip. And, and hold on, that's not being a part of an agency that is plotting a murder attempt. No, no, he's he's. This a, is him personally. Yeah, he's involved. Oh, planning yeah. assassination. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think that's a. Yeah, and so. Yeah, we are not in the same realm anymore. We're not in the same like political situation. Um. Yeah, it's and I'm I'm sure like Bonhoeffer like he wrestled i'm sure i we know that he wrestled with with this whole situation um you know in his mind he was able to he was able to justify it. he knew it, he was getting his hands dirty in the process mm-hmm. but it became a question of greater good right mm-hmm. or what's the greater evil or what, how do we stop the greater evil right right it's one of those things right like <clears throat> you know if i'm 
it, especially when it's harming other people. That's I think that's a th- I feel like the non-retaliation when someone insults us individually is one thing, but is defending innocent people contrary to God's will? I anyways, we don't have to get it. we've yeah. I I, th- I think it's different. It's different when innocent people are at risk, right? In and, my mind, anyways, and and that's where yeah, that's where when I look at this, I think. I'm I'm more of a pacifist than this. Like, is there anything the Canadian government could do? Oh, right. That would cause me to join a group planning the assassination of the prime minister. Right. No. Right. Yeah. No, I I just I can't envision that. Right. At all, as not only as a justifiable thing, but as a thing that would even tempt me. Yeah. But if they were throwing millions of people into ovens and gas chambers. But at the same time, Bonhoeffer was there. Yeah. He was a pacifist. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And the situation changed him. Yeah. Yeah. For for right or for wrong. Mm-hmm. Sure. I would be most tempted to say went too far. Mm. But again, like I, I think Bonhoeffer there. I think Bonhoeffer in nineteen twenty would have agreed with me. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, he'd be like, "Oh, there's no situation where I would try to destroy the, like, kill the chancellor." Of but there's, but there's something about it, this, the circumstance, the situation yeah. that did a flip with him. Yeah, and his understanding of what we talked about ages ago, right, in the year in the fourth century with Augustine and just war theory. Sure, right, or during the Reformation with guys like Zwingli and Knox. Right, these right. guys get involved in these conflicts, and you're like. Is this the, is this behavior becoming of a pastor? And it's like, this is worlds away from where we're at, though. Yeah, yeah. And so they they just land in the situation in a different place. Yeah. I I don't know. I I'd like to think that I I wouldn't, mm-hmm. um, but I also don't want to say that I'm better than them. Right. Yeah. So in April 1943, Bonhoeffer is arrested by the Gestapo. Uh, when information comes to light that he's implicated in plots to assassinate Hitler, overthrow really? the government, <laughs> he's sent to Tegel Prison, where he was awaiting trial. And while he's there, he took it upon himself to minister to other prisoners. Mm-hmm. There's actually a, a a book of his. I think it's called Letters from Prison. Mm-hmm. I believe that's kind of shed some light on that that time in his life. Um, so later on, while he's in prison, there is another failed plot to assassinate Hitler, one that, although Bonhoeffer's in jail, he was involved in, in planning it. It was the 20th of July plot um, where he, he was in his wolf's lair. They were going to get him like in his, in his kind of um, sanctuary, uh, but it failed, and it was discovered that this plot was associated with Bonhoeffer and this group, and he's moved to a concentration camp. And then on April 8th, 1945, less than a month before Germany surrenders, he's hanged. And and you can tell how far Bonhoeffer was up the chain because there was a group of six guys who were involved in the plot who were all hanged at the same time. One was an admiral and two were generals. Mm-hmm. And then there was Bonhoeffer and an affluent businessman and another resistance fighter. But he was he was at the he was at the heart of some pretty some pretty intense stuff. Um, yeah. And there's accounts of like his last moments, you know, just praying confidently that, you know, he knows where he's going. Um, and again, so, I mean, it's, 
he's one that didn't he's one that didn't make it. Um, and he was not alone in that. There was hundreds of pastors who were executed. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I mean, there were millions of people who died in these concentration yeah. camps. But um, mm-hmm. Bonhoeffer is one of those guys that, yeah, for his convictions, um, yeah, was was killed. So, yeah. The plan was, at this point, to start transitioning in some of the other things that are going to go on in Germany. Like, Germany just becomes a center, which mm-hmm. which is a bit incredible mm-hmm. if you consider where they're at at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, are, they have been on the wrong side of two world wars with a crippling time between those wars right and the entire world hating them Mm -hmm. right and and yet christian thought and discussion Mm. is still taking place um i wonder some if it's the pressure cooker of it that causes people to be like we got to have some of these conversations right right um but it, it, nonetheless, there's a resilience yeah. of these kinds of thoughts. And, and so the, the point was to transition into that. Mm-hmm. There's no way we can, yeah. we can do that right now. No, I understand. Uh, but the world, the world is going to uh, frown on Germany again mm-hmm. at this point mm-hmm. uh, as the war comes to a close mm-hmm. in mid to late 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are going to see the world divided into two parts, mm-hmm. three parts. There is the democratic world, mm-hmm. the communist world, right. and those who aren't involved. Those who aren't involved are called the third world. Right. So when, when people get upset and they're like, you shouldn't call them third world because that's derogatory. They're the developing nations. This is my big beef with that. <laughs> my big beef is that that's beautiful irony from not understanding the circumstance, right? right. Ethiopia <clears throat> has been a country mm-hmm. since biblical times. Oh, yeah. Right? To call them a developing nation right, and then to call the United States a <laughs> developed nation right, right, right. is a bit of a slap in the face. <laughs> don't worry Ethiopia we've been at this for 225 years you'll get there (laughs) you'll get there when you grow up I think Ethiopia this is a side note I think they're the only African nation to have not been totally subdued by um, uh, European powers well yeah there you go yeah Italy tried and failed but this is where the concept of third world comes from. Yeah, 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 yeah. It happens that many of those countries do have socioeconomic struggles. Oh, for sure, yeah. Which is in part why they're not a part of this power struggle. Yeah, they aren't buy, they aren't buying nukes if they can't get bread. Right. Like. <laughs> right. So that becomes that becomes the exchange. Right. And so right. now third world has only mm-hmm. that notion of right. the socioeconomic need right Right. um but the world gets divided into into these parts these portions and Mm. those who were once friendly in the battle under the notion of 
Um, enemies of my enemies are my friends. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. After after that settles, there's the whole like, but we're not friends. Right. And yeah. we never were. Right. We shared a common enemy. Yeah. And we participated in so much as we needed to see that enemy subdued. Mm-hmm. The threat is gone, and now you're the enemy. Right. And and that is where we start the Cold War. Yep. That is where Germany gets cut in half overnight. Yeah, see, literally, yeah. Families wake up in the morning, and there are temporary barriers and guards. Eventually, walls go up. Marshall, if if I could take you back seven years and bring you to Toronto, where I pastored that formerly German Baptist, but still very heavily German Baptist church, mm-hmm. the number of people that I had in that church that would sit around and casually tell stories of their escape from East Germany. Mm-hmm of their parents cutting their coats open and taking out the insulation and stuffing it back with money. Wow. So that when they when they got their escape, they were there. Of a woman who had a friend who lived right on the border and one night went to the washroom and just something struck her. And instead of coming out of the washroom, she crawled through the bathroom window and made a run for it. Wow. <clears throat> of of people who just remember being told as kids, grab this and keep up. Mm-hmm. And they drug along whatever bag their parents gave them. Yeah. Man. That's crazy. The stories, like a lot of them, a lot of them like still mourn things like their pets so we're talking about people in their 70s, 80s now. Right, right. Have who who we... were just told as kids, yeah, we're going to we're going to go into town. We're going to get on the train. Right. They're like, that's awesome. We're going to take a train ride. Right. They hop on the train and their parents didn't tell them because sure. This is not information you entrust to a child. Right. And never return home. Wow, yeah. Right? Uh it's it's one thing for it to be history. It's another thing to sit down with the people who lived it and talk to them. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Yeah. But this is this is that world divided, that yeah. world split, um, and the tensions mount. Einstein's work twisted mm-hmm. into weapon and weaponized, so that we have nuclear capabilities. Right. Um, which exists in World War II. Right. That's famously. Yeah. What How ends it in Japan? Japan yeah. is subdued. Um, but that those things become global knowledge and the arms race begins, the space race begins, this divided world, it's going to affect the church. Yeah, oh, for sure. And so that's next week's episode. Mm-hmm. What does the church look like in the Cold War? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Looking forward to that conversation. Yep, all right. Uh, you know what? I got a paper to read to you. You do? I got, I got a little thing I want to read before we go. Okay, thanks. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada, and it's produced by Alex Walker. See you next time. See ya.